This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution with the restless business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. In each episode, we'll learn more from the restless ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Earlier, we talked about General Thomas Alexandre Dumas, who was the son of an aristocrat and an enslaved woman from the French colony of Saint-Domingue, which is now Haiti. One of his children was Alexandre Dumas, known today as Alexandre Dumas Père, to distinguish him from his own son, who also had the same name, because we wanted to be really confusing with this uh, trio of men in this family. Uh, Alexandre Dumas Père, of course, wrote such classics as The Three Musketeers and The Count of Monte Cristo and both of those works, sequels and eight Marie Antoinette romances and a bunch of other novels and plays and essays and travel books and memoirs and a dictionary of cuisine. Hundreds and hundreds of works. The man was prolific. He did so much and so much happened in his life that it's really impossible to do justice to every single aspect of it in one episode of the show. And having multiple episodes seemed like it was getting super excessive in terms of the Dumas family. So today we're going to talk about the upbringing that led Alexandre Dumas to become the writer that he was, along with some of the highlights and themes of his later life and work. In my head, I'm now like... (laughs) We should we should start a podcast just called Dumas, and it's just their family and all of its yeah, all of its high drama and fascinating uh, twists and turns. So Alexandre Dumas was born on July twenty fourth, eighteen o two, in the town of Villers-Cotterêts in northern France. His father, as we just said, was General Alex Dumas. His mother was Marie Louise Elizabeth Lebouré, daughter of an innkeeper, and the two of them met when Alex was billeted at that inn during the French Revolution. Alexandre had one surviving older sister and another who died before he was born. According to his father, he weighed 10 and a half pounds and was 18 inches long at birth. Dumas' childhood was quite difficult, although his father had been in command of huge parts of the French military, which we talked about in that previous episode. He had fallen out of favor with Napoleon long before being captured and imprisoned in a dungeon in Naples for nearly two years. 
Once he was released, he was injured and ill, and he still couldn't collect a pension or back pay, so the family fell into poverty. Alexandre spent his early childhood in the company of his father, who regained some of his former health, but not enough to return to active duty. He heard all kinds of stories about his father's dramatic exploits in the army. Alex Dumas had also been fond of performing various feats of strength, some of which he could still manage, and young Alexandre was fascinated by them. His father had been a war hero and one of the most prominent men of color in the French military. But Alexandre's perception of him went even beyond that into someone who was larger than life and almost mythic. Dumas described it this way, quote, I adored my father. Perhaps at so early an age, the feeling which today I call love was only a naive astonishment at that Herculean stature and that gigantic strength I'd seen him display on so many occasions. Perhaps it was nothing more than a childish pride and admiration. But in spite of all that, even today the memory of my father in every detail of his body, in every feature of his face, is as present to me as if I had lost him yesterday." Alex Dumas died on February 26, 1806, probably from stomach cancer. Alexandre was approaching his fourth birthday, and as his father's condition worsened, his mother sent him to spend the night with cousins who lived nearby so that he would not be traumatized if his father died during the night. On the night of his father's death, Alexandre woke his cousins and told them he was going to go open the door for his father, who had come to say goodbye. In the morning, when he was told that God had taken his father to heaven, Alexandre answered that he was going to go to heaven himself for revenge. With his mother a widow without much to live on, Alexandre had very little structure to his childhood. Marie-Louise tried to secure a widow's pension and was so persistent about it that Napoleon Bonaparte finally told the general who had been bringing it up with him on her their behalf, quote, I forbid you to ever mention that fellow to me again. So Alexandra's mother spent her time working to try to make ends meet and to pay for his older sister's education. Alexandra briefly spent some time enrolled at a private school, and his sister would teach him while she was home on school breaks. But beyond that, in his early years, Alexandra didn't have much formal education. He loved to read, and he loved to talk about what he read, and he took a few years of violin lessons that he said left him not even able to tune the instrument. Occasionally, his mother tried to enroll him in a school or seminary, but this never lasted very long, with Alexandre running away or refusing to go back more often than not. In 1814, when Alexandre was 12, his mother finally got access to a widow's pension and used it to open a tobacco shop. A year later, he managed to catch a glimpse of Napoleon Bonaparte in person. Dumas described seeing him pass through town both before and after the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, which was, of course, pivotal. He wrote, quote, I confess I had an intense desire to see this man, who, in making his heavy hand felt throughout France, had, in a peculiarly hard fashion, ground down a poor atom like myself, lost among 32 millions of human beings whom he continued to crush while forgetting my very existence. In 1816, Alexandre met two other young men who would start him on the path to becoming a writer. One was Adolf Ribbing de Leuven, the son of a Swedish nobleman who moved into the area around Villers-Cotterêts. The other was Amédée de la Ponce, who was an officer. And Adolphe wanted to be a playwright and had connections to the theater scene in Paris. Amadeo knew German and Italian and offered to teach Dumas these languages in his spare time. 
Although Alexander didn't have a lot of schooling, he did have very neat and almost flowery handwriting, which let him get an apprenticeship with a notary in 1818. He did a lot of errands. He copied documents by hand. It was a job that he described as intolerable if he had had to pay attention to what he was copying, but since he could copy without thinking about the words themselves, he was free to just let his mind wander. This job was what allowed Dumas to take his first trip to a Paris theater. A client gave him and his fellow clerks a gratuity, and they decided to go in together and catch a very early stagecoach to Paris. There, they saw an adaptation of Hamlet by Jean-Francois Ducy. This was a formative experience in Dumas' life. He came home in a state of amazement, and he wrote to the theater to send a copy of the play so he could study it over and over. For the next few years, Dumas' life was very much the same. He did some studying, he hung out with his friends, he worked for the notary, and he started trying his hand at writing his own poems and plays. He also pursued various young women along Vieille His father had always been described as exceptionally handsome, and the same was true of the young Alexandra, who had blue eyes, relatively fair skin, and hair that he called Mon Fui Tropical, or My Tropical Tangle. He was also, by his own admission, very vain, and by everyone else's admission, he was extremely popular with women. The biggest detriment to all of this in his youth was that the family had so little money that his clothing tended to be too small and in pretty poor repair, and that made him the target for mockery among the more mean-spirited of them. During these years, Napoleon, who had been at the root of so many problems for the Dumas family, was forced off the imperial throne of France exiled, returned from exile, and exiled again before dying in British custody on the island of St. Helena on May 5, 1821. But apart from that one sighting of Napoleon in 1815, Dumas felt fairly removed from what was happening on the national stage. Eventually, Dumas started trying to make his way to Paris on a more regular basis. He thought if he could just get to the city, he might be able to earn enough money to support himself and his mother. And we will talk about how he got there after a sponsor break. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep-dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand, and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal, and they're candid, and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. 
Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. As I noted before the break, in the early 1820s, Alexandre Dumas made up his mind to start visiting Paris as often as he could with the mind to eventually moving there. But he really had to scrounge for money to make these trips. On one occasion, he and a friend went together hunting rabbits and partridges along the way so that they could sell them once they got to Paris and pay for their food and lodging. This required the two of them to outsmart the gamekeepers who were in charge of the land that they were illegally hunting on. They only had one horse between them, so one had the gun and the other stayed on the horse to take the quarry and ride off with it before the gameskeeper could follow the sound of the shot and find them. They did make it to Paris and back, but Dumas got fired from a new notary job that he'd gotten just a few months before. He had taken this trip while his boss was away, planning to go and return without him knowing, but instead his boss got back a few hours before he did. I feel like that's a classic sitcom scenario. Yeah. (laughs) Playing out in the early 1800s in France. Yeah, this is one of the many things, like so many things come up that just sound like this could be a little scene from one of his books. After his mother sold some property to settle the family's debts, Dumas convinced her to let him sell some engravings that his father had brought home while serving in the military. And then, according to his memoir, he tried to build on the 50 francs that he had gotten for these engravings. He took his money to the local coffee house and started playing billiards against a family friend named Monsieur Cartier, with the loser buying the winner two glasses of absinthe. They weren't drinking the absinthe, they were just using this to basically keep score. They kept doubling their bets over the course of five hours until, according to Dumas, he had won 600 glasses of absinthe. That was worth about 90 francs, which he took in lieu of all that alcohol. I don't know. There's something, you know, you could have done a split payment. That would save (laughs) Uh, That was enough to pay for about a dozen round-trip tickets to Paris, and Dumas made frequent trips back and forth before moving there in 1823. He had few resources when he got there, though. His biggest asset was a collection of letters of introduction that his mother had written to various old friends and military buddies of his late father. And one of these was General Maximilian Sebastian Foy. Foy wanted to help, but he very quickly figured out that Dumas really did not know how to do anything. His haphazard schooling and his self-study, which he wasn't all that dedicated with, had left him without a working knowledge of almost any subject. And his ample slacking off at the notary jobs he'd had had left him without any practical skills there either. His one strong point was that very attractive, ornate handwriting. This really brought it home for Dumas that he had been wasting his youth. After seeing Foy's reaction to finally figuring out one thing he could do, that thing being right neatly, 
He said, quote, My head fell on my breast. My shame was insupportable. The only thing I possessed was good handwriting. This diploma of incapacity well became me. A beautiful handwriting. So someday I might become a copying clerk. This was my future. I would rather cut off my right arm. Fortunately, though, the general did know somebody in a very high position who needed a clerk. That was the Duc d'Orléans, who would later become King Louis-Philippe. But in a way, this really added insult to injury, because not only was Dumas' only job skill this good handwriting, but the people back home were astonished that he had managed to find a position with a duke, of all people, after spending all those years not particularly applying himself to anything. (laughs) So not only did he have a job he didn't want, people were shocked that he had gotten it. He consoled himself with the fact that now at least he had a salary of 1,200 francs. Of course, his ambition was not to be a copyist, even if it was the copyist for a duke. Fortunately, though, one of his supervisors was sympathetic to his ambitions of becoming a playwright and advised him on a course of self-study and a focus for his creative work. His supervisor's advice? Study the history of France, which in his opinion wasn't getting nearly enough attention in the world of French literature and theater, and then write about that. Through this advice and this recommended course of self-study, Dumas came up with a goal for himself. He wanted to do for France what Sir Walter Scott had done for Scotland. He was particularly inspired by Scott's Waverly novels, which include Ivanhoe and Rob Roy, along with 20 others. Those books were a major milestone in the development of historical fiction as a genre in European literature. And so that's what Dumas set his mind on doing, writing historical fiction set in France and making that popular with the French public. At first, though, his focus was really on writing this historical fiction through plays and not novels. Dumas went to the theater as often as he could and embarked on a study of classic works of literature, including during downtime at work. He started making friends with notable people in the literary, theatrical, and artistic circles of Paris, including people like Charles Nodier, who was connected to numerous writers in the French Romantic movement, and Victor Hugo, author of Les Miserables and The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And Dumas started a relationship with a young woman named Marie-Catherine Labay, with whom he had a son, who was also named Alexandra, on July 27, 1824. The two of them never married, but Dumas paid for their lodging and visited them often as after their romantic relationship ended. Dumas also started selling short comic sketches to theaters to earn some extra money to try to keep them all afloat. His first serious attempt at a play was called Christine and was about previous podcast subject Christina of Sweden. He submitted it to a theater company, which accepted it, but even after a long series of revisions, they didn't ultimately perform it. Instead, Dumas' first full-length play to be staged was Henri III and His Court, which debuted on February 11, 1829 at the Comédie Française, which was one of France's state theaters. Just a few days before the play's debut, Dumas' mother had a stroke, so he had to divide his time between the theater and her bedside, including stepping out of the theater to go check on her during that first performance. Just before the play opened, he also invited the Duc d'Orléans, who politely declined, saying that he had another engagement. Dumas convinced the Duc to come and to bring his whole retinue with him. A lot of Dumas' friends were also there, including Victor Hugo. 
possibly helped by having so many people who he knew and liked in the audience, the reception was overall extremely positive. There was a lot of loud applause in the theater and generally pretty favorable reviews afterward. And this performance has been cited as the start of a shift in French theater, away from the classical and toward the romantic, with the play itself a drama rather than a classic tragedy. But of course, the acclaim was not universal. A number of more classically-minded, established playwrights objected to its more romantic sensibilities and staging, and the fact that it was melodramatic instead of tragic. Some of these playwrights circulated a petition denouncing the theater's management for allowing such a play to be staged and advocating that France not allow such work to be performed at any of its national theaters. Henri III was also criticized for being against the monarchy, and it spawned a huge debate about censorship. This was the first of many, many plays in a career that was truly prolific and did involve the staging of Christine not long after. But almost immediately, Dumas' output slowed down just a little as he became a revolutionary. We will talk about that after a quick sponsor break. How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? All four of my kids are grown and out of the house. And I was chucked out of a 25-year career. Super fun. Our lives have changed direction. So now what do we do? What's the first move when you have no idea where you're headed? For us, it was starting the Road to Somewhere podcast. And we still don't really know where we're going, but every one of our episodes takes us someplace a little different. It's super exciting, but if we're being honest, it can also get a little scary. Because maybe you're relocating. Or having your first baby. Or leaving a relationship. Just starting. Or just starting over. No matter what the change you're going through, the question is really the same. How do we get fearless when we feel uncertain? I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In addition to writing and co-writing a massive amount of work during his lifetime, Alexandre Dumas was, like his father, a revolutionary, although not on the exact same scale as his father. Thomas Alexandre Dumas had been firmly on the liberty, equality, fraternity side of the French Revolution and was a staunch defender of the French Republic. Dumas had many of these same leanings, which came to the fore in 1830. The July Revolution, or the Revolution of 1830, was one of a series of revolutions that swept through Europe between 1830 and 1832. In France, it was in response to a series of ordinances issued by King Charles X. In these ordinances, the king dissolved the Chamber of Deputies and called for new elections to be held in September. But he also changed the laws so that most of the electorate lost their right to vote, and he suspended the freedom of the press. People were, of course, very upset by this. Dumas had been on the verge of leaving for a trip to Algiers, which France had just annexed when these four ordinances were issued. So instead of going on his trip, he sent his servant to retrieve his gun from the gunsmiths and to buy him some ammunition. And then as the revolution grew more violent, he joined the demonstrators at the barricades. After hearing the Marquis de Lafayette, who has been name-dropped in so many podcasts at this point I can't even keep up, After hearing him say that they did not have enough ammunition, Dumas also planned and helped carry out a successful powder raid at the magazine at Soissons. 
The fighting went on from July 27th to the 29th, after which Charles abdicated. And his successor was King Louis-Philippe, former Duc d'Orléans, described as the king of the French rather than the king of France. But Dumas' prior relationship with the king did not serve him well. The king told him to stick to poetry, not politics, and Dumas rebutted that a poet's point of view could be prophetic. Louis-Philippe abruptly dismissed him, and Dumas resigned his position at the library of the Palais Royal, where Louis-Philippe had appointed him while still a duke. A similar series of revolutions took place in 1848, which overthrew Louis-Philippe. Dumas was part of this uprising, too, and then afterward, he tried unsuccessfully to run for parliament. To return to the 1830s, though, on March 5th, 1831, Dumas and belle croix had a daughter together, who they named Marie-Alexandrine. The next year, he took a trip to Switzerland, and he published a travelogue from his time there in 1833. This was the first of many travels, sometimes for pleasure, but often to escape criticism, political disputes, the ire of the monarch, or debt. Yeah, one of the articles that I read leading up to this was... Basically, like, when the going got tough, Dumas left. (laughs) In the 1830s, he started experimenting with writing stories and novels rather than just plays. And in 1836, a new development in the world of publishing really shifted what he was doing. Until that point, newspapers in France had sold annual subscriptions. But that year, a paper called La Presse started selling individual issues. And with individual issue sales came the opportunity for serialized novels that were published one bit at a time from one issue to the next, something we're familiar with today that at the time was truly groundbreaking. This was hugely successful, both for Dumas and for the newspaper. He started writing novels that would be published serially, with installments ending with cliffhangers to encourage people to buy the next issue. Other publications and writers started following the same model. Serialized writing drove a dramatic increase in newspaper sales, and that increase lasted for decades. In 1840, Dumas married Ida Ferrier. They would be together for about the next four years, and they spent most of that time living in Florence because it was cheaper than Paris. Many of Dumas' most famous works were written between 1844 and 1854, including The Three Musketeers and The Count of Monte Cristo. This was his most prolific decade as a writer, with most of the work featuring exciting stories full of heroic characters that play out against a backdrop of French history. His massive output during this time was not solely his own work, though. He had researchers and collaborators who were part of it as well. They would often sketch out the book's outline while Dumas filled in all the details in the dialogue, or they would provide background research. The most well-known of these was Auguste Maquette, who took Dumas to court in 1856 and 1858, claiming that his contributions to 18 of Dumas' novels was significant enough that he should be listed as the co-author. While the court did order Dumas to pay Maquette some of the money that he was owed, uh, they left the attribution of the books as it was. There is still a lack of consensus uh, of, like, how much actual work these various assistants were doing. Alexandre Dumas' success led to ongoing problems with money. He was making an enormous income for the time. The average worker's pay when he was living was about three francs a day, but some years Dumas was making more than 80,000 francs. 
but he spent lavishly and often without any kind of workable plan. He launched two different newspapers, both of which later folded. He started construction on Chateau de Monte Cristo in 1846, and when he ran out of money, that was sold at auction. In 1847, he opened the Théâtre Historique in Paris, which was bankrupt within three years, leading him to be prosecuted for his debts. He fled to Belgium, and then Russia, and then Sicily, and then back to Paris to finally settle his bankruptcy. His travels and his spending habits did not stop there, though. In the late 1850s, he went to England, Germany, Russia, and Italy. And then in 1860, he bought a yacht called the Emma, and he used that yacht to follow Giuseppe Garibaldi's Expedition of the 1000 in 1860. It wasn't just that he was following this expedition in a yacht. The yacht itself was full of champagne and fine food as well, and this made it a huge and kind of weird disparity between Dumas on the yacht and the expedition, which had almost no money, almost no training, and rusty rifles, but still at the same time managed to take down the Bourbon Kingdom of the Two Sicilies in southern Italy. That is a lot to try to sum up. There is an episode on that in the archive. I thought about replaying it as a Saturday classic, but it is pretty short, and I haven't found anything to pair it with, so... Uh, You can go find that on our website if you're interested in learning more about that sort of information dump I just had. Also aboard the Emma was a woman named Emily Cordier, with whom Dumas had a daughter, Michaela Clélie Josepha Elizabeth, in 1860. So all this together, the spending lots of money, the having a number of children with a variety of different women, his general behavior, all of that made Dumas a frequent target of satire and derision especially as he got older, newspaper cartoonists depicted him as this rotund, inept, and very vain person with an increasingly astonishing tangle of hair. Like his father, he was fond of dueling, and his critics made fun of him for that, too. <laughs> as with his, the episode on his father, there's part of me that's like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Get your act together. Uh, but also, he produced a lot of delightful things, so it's not my place. Uh, Sometimes these criticisms were totally warranted. After the expedition of the 1000, Giuseppe Garibaldi named Dumas the director of excavations and museums. Dumas took that as an opportunity to try to insert himself as an influencer in Naples. And he was so relentlessly mocked for it that Garibaldi rescinded his appointment after merely a few days. Historians diverge on the role that racism may have played in all of this and in Dumas' life. Obviously, racism existed. Honoré de Balzac, for example, called Dumas that Negro. And these caricatures, as I mentioned earlier, often really played up things like Dumas' hair, which was very distinctive and sometimes large. There's also a widely reported anecdote in which somebody was disparagingly talking about Dumas' race, and he walked over to them and said, quote, my father was a mulatto, my grandfather was a Negro, and my great-grandfather a monkey. You see, sir, my family starts where yours ends. But it wasn't something that Dumas really talked about in his own memoirs, and comparatively few of his works focus on Black characters. Most notable is Georges, which we talked about in our prior episode, in which the titular character is described as mulatto and leads a slave uprising. Ingenue, which is set in the French Revolution, calls for the abolition of slavery. There's a lot more along the lines of general injustice than racism specifically. Earlier in his life, Dumas had described himself and his process this way, quote, My dramatic work and my efforts at historical writing had developed two principal qualities, those of dialogue and of narrative. 
And these are qualities which, speaking with my usual frankness about myself, I may say that I possess in a superior degree. But at this time, I had not yet discovered the existence of two other qualities no less important, lightheartedness and a lively, amusing style. As a rule, people are cheerful and lighthearted because their digestion is in good order and they have nothing to bother them. But in my case, this condition is a persistent one, not indeed making me insensible to sorrow, which whether affecting my friends or myself moves me deeply, but rendering me proof against all the worries, cares, and conflicts of daily life. But toward the end of his life, Dumas was no longer free from cares and worries. He became increasingly wistful and anxious. In 1857, he had a conversation with his son, Alexandre, who found him awake at night. The elder Alexandre said that his stomach hurt, and that when that happened, he walked. He said when it got worse, he read. The younger Alexandre asked, and what about when it gets too painful to read? And his father answered, I work. In 1870, at the age of 68, Dumas was broke, and he moved in with his son, who was now a respected writer in his own right, and told him, quote, I have come to die in your home. He did die on December 5th of 1870 and was buried in his hometown of Vieux-Cotre. By the time of his death, Dumas had not been forgotten, but he wasn't exactly honored either. During his lifetime, he had written at least 300 works, including Le Grand Dictionnaire de Cuisine, which was published three years after he died. And his novels and plays were often adored by the public. They were popular and commercially successful. But in the eyes of the academic establishment, they weren't all that worthwhile. His son, for example, was admitted to the Académie Française, or French Academy, while Alexandre Dumas-Père never was. His work was considered too lowbrow. Today, though, several of Dumas' works are considered among the classics of French literature, and they've been translated into more than 100 languages and adapted over and over and over and over for the stage, TV, radio, and film. In 2002, Dumas' body was exhumed, and he was reinterred at the Pantheon in Paris, alongside people like Emile Zola and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Voltaire, Victor Hugo, and other notable figures like Louis Braille and Marie Curie. At the reburial, there was a parade of people in costume, and the casket was carried by four musketeers and covered in a drape that said in French, all for one and one for all. French President Jacques Chirac described it as, quote, repaying an injustice which marked Dumas from childhood, just as it marked the skin of his slave ancestors. I watched some footage of this on the internet yesterday. I was surprisingly affected by it. <laughs> Uh, I don't, like, I don't feel the most gigantic emotional attachment to the Three Musketeers or anything like that, but I was just watching this funeral procession with Alexandre Dumas' uh, casket just bawling at my desk. I totally get that. Yeah, it choked me up a lot. Uh, this also did happen over the extremely strong objections of V.A. Coltre. They were not happy about exhuming him. They called it an insult to his memory. The mayor was kind of like, well, after I approved this, I realized that I really regret it. It was uh, very upsetting for the place that he had grown up and was originally buried. And the Chateau de Monte Cristo that we talked about him working on and not quite finishing was eventually restored. It is now a museum. In the late 1980s, a copy of Le Chevalier de Saint-Armine, which is the last cavalier, was unearthed at the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, and that was published in 2005. Maybe when we are in Paris this June, we can uh, go and visit the grave of Alexandre Dumas. 
I don't know if it will be possible to go to the museum because that's a little farther afield from where we will be staying. Yeah, I have uh, such a long list already that I'm almost reluctant to add another thing to it. We have a little bit of free time in the in the trip outside of the the preset tour schedule. And I'm scared to keep adding to it because I think I might be maxed out already on the places that I want to run and go. Um, But but maybe we'll go to the Pantheon. I, on the other hand, have had a lot going on. Uh, Nothing bad, just a lot going on. Um, And so I have just been like, we're going to Paris in June. And that is the end of my thought process. I'm going to have to look at it in more detail before we, you know, get on a plane. Yeah, I'm uh I got I got plans at one one of our days off. I think some of my friends from London are going to come over and meet us and hang out. So Nice. Um, yeah, we have like two days that are fairly free. So one of those will work out whichever works best for them, but there will be much running around and there's some fabric stores I got to hit and you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're hearing this and you're thinking trip to Paris, what? We are taking a trip to Paris. Listeners can come with us. If you go to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, up at the top menu, there is a link that says Paris trip, exclamation point. Uh, That's under the little menu icon if you're on a mobile device. And that will take you to the page where you can find out all the information about it and where you can sign up. Uh, We are both incredibly excited. My lack of planning does not reflect my excitement. That has just increasingly become how I travel (laughs) by going... (laughs) I'll figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> I have nothing, a basic outline. I'll figure it out. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, part of it is because um, some of the people that have decided to go on this trip with us are friends of mine, so they, we've all been yakking a lot about it. Um, oh, yeah. And where we're going to run off to at various points in time, and my husband and I are going to try to get away and do a date or two while we're there. Yeah. You know, it's a lot to pack in, but you don't want to waste your your time right, there because right. we're not in Paris all the time. Yeah. Uh, when uh, when my husband and I went on our honeymoon to Iceland a couple of years ago, we had a, a list of things that we wanted to see or do while we were there. And then we had our lodging worked out in advance for every night of the trip. But then otherwise, we just sort of left ourselves open to things, which uh, in some ways is how this trip is already planned out because we have days that are pretty structured in terms of walking tours and going to Versailles and stuff like that and days that are more like explore the city time. Um, But that we enjoyed that trip so much that it's become sort of the template of how we travel now. Perfect. Perfect. Yay. Do you have listener mail? I sure do. This goes back to our episode on the regulator war. It is from Lisa. Lisa says, I just listened to the podcast on the regulator war, and I wanted to share a little historical tidbit related to it. I went to college at Elon University, which is in Alamance County, and just down the road from Alamance Battleground Historical Site. Today, there's a small historical exhibit about the event on the property, which I went to visit when I was living in the area. In the podcast, you mentioned that some people argue that this event influenced the American Revolution due to the similarities between their causes, and this is very much the opinion of the staff at the historical site. When I told them I was from out of state, they asked if I was from Massachusetts. I said no, and then they proceeded to explain that they view this battle as the first battle of the American Revolution, not Lexington or Concord. Unsurprisingly, visitors from Massachusetts did not like this particular interpretation. Thanks for the interesting podcasts, Lisa. Thank you, Lisa, for writing us this email. Uh, One of the things that I uncovered when I was working on that episode that didn't make it into the final episode was sort of the historiography of that event and how it has changed over time. Um, Because there was a period 
sort of in the late 19th, early 20th century, where people were sort of like, yeah, this was definitely where we should start the beginning of the Revolutionary War. Lisa did not specify how long ago this trip to the uh, to the battleground was. And I did find, as I was looking through stuff, a picture that was of a historical marker that did seem to suggest, like, this was the first battle of the American Revolution. That does not appear to be the stance of the park or, like, the North Carolina, uh, whichever department it is that is governing those parks. Uh, That does not appear to be the case anymore. Um, The Friends of the Alamance Battleground website uh, has a thing that says, although the Battle of Alamance was not the first official battle of the American Revolution, it did provide some valuable insight for revolutionaries as discontent with British rule continued to increase. So uh, that, to me, is a really interesting example of how writing about history has changed over time because uh, history is not like a dry set of facts that existed and have no interpretation to them at all. The way that historians interpret things shifts. Um, and I found a super interesting paper that uh, that went into all that in detail that initially I had a bunch of stuff about in the outline that I finally decided was a little bit off the, the actual topic. So I took it out. Um, but I'm glad I had a ta- an opportunity to talk about it today. It also cracks me up that there's a little... North Carolina, Massachusetts, arguing. They are arguing is not exactly <laughs> a, the right word. A, li- a little conflict of, yeah. <laughs> of opinion. It is, yeah, it's totally valid to say that a lot of times um, uh, education and uh, instruction about the Revolutionary War focuses a whole lot on the Northeast and does not talk as much about things that happened elsewhere. Even growing up in North Carolina, I feel like most of the Revolutionary War stuff that we heard about was happening in places like Massachusetts. Um, So, like, that's a totally valid point to make about history education. Anyway... If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And we're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, our Twitter, our Pinterest, and our Instagram. If you come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, you will find that link for the trip to Paris, as well as a searchable archive of every episode we've ever done and show notes for the episodes Holly and I have done together. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you get your podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. The Only Way is Through, a new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform. Listen to The Only Way is Through, available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. 
Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Rome and Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History class.